New York, this is Democracy Now! I do hold responsible in the sense that supplying the weapons to the people who Widening war? President Biden says he holds Iran responsible for the drone killing of three U.S. soldiers at a base in Jordan and that he's decided on a U.S. response. Then a shocking raid on a Janin hospital by undercover Israeli forces dressed as doctors and Muslim women in headscarves kills three Palestinians. We'll go to Ramallah to speak with Palestinian physician and politician Mustafa Barghouti. And thousands of Israelis gather in Jerusalem for a major conference calling for the Israeli resettlement of Gaza. We are settling our land from width to length, controlling it and fighting terror always and bringing with God's help security to all of Israel. You know what the answer is. Without settlement, there is no security. We'll go to Tel Aviv to speak with an Israeli reporter who covered the conference. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. New satellite imagery shows at least 144,000 buildings in Gaza have been damaged or destroyed since the Israeli bombardment began nearly four months ago. That's more than half of all buildings in the Gaza Strip, including mosques, schools, universities and cultural sites. Corey Schur of the City University of New York told the BBC, we've done work over Ukraine. We've also looked at Aleppo and other cities, but the extent and the pace of damage is remarkable. I've never seen this much damage appear so quickly, he said. In other news, the heads of multiple U.N. organizations are warning Gaza will face catastrophic consequences if the Palestinian refugee agency UNRWA runs out of money. The United States and over a dozen other nations have paused funding for the agency after Israel accused 12 of UNRWA's 13,000 employees in Gaza of taking part in the Hamas attack on October 7th. Meanwhile, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is vowing to continue the war in Gaza despite reports negotiators may be close to reaching a deal to pause fighting for at least six weeks to make time for Israel and Hamas to swap captives. Health officials in the occupied West Bank have denounced Israel for sending in a team of undercover assassins into a Janine hospital to execute three Palestinian militants in a hospital room Tuesday. The Israeli special forces were disguised as medical workers and scrubs and Muslim women wearing headscarves. Palestinian officials say one of the men killed was recovering in the hospital after being paralyzed from an Israeli drone strike in October. Naji Nazal is the medical director at Ibn Sina Hospital. They killed the three youth, Basil and Mohammed Ghazawi and Mohammed Jalamni, in their room, while they were sleeping on their beds in the room. They were killed in cold blood, with direct gunshots to the head. In Washington, State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller refused to condemn the Israeli raid on the Jinnian Hospital. I'm not able to speak to the facts of the operation. You'd have to, to, to pass some kind of legal judgment, know all of the facts of the operation. But as a general matter, they do have the right to carry out operations to bring terrorists to justice, but they need to be conducted. Including in hospital. It, 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 so we want them to conduct their operations in compliance with their national humanitarian law. 
Israel's admitted it's begun flooding tunnels in Gaza with seawater, despite warnings from the United Nations that the move could damage Palestinian drinking water and sewage systems. Israel said Hamas and other Palestinian groups have built as many as 450 miles of tunnels where many leaders of Hamas are believed to live, they say. In related news, the mother of an Israeli hostage who died in Gaza has accused the Israeli military of killing her son by pumping poison gas into a tunnel where he was being held. In December, Dr. Mayan Sherman said Israeli officials had told her that her son, Ron, had been murdered by Hamas in Gaza. But she started questioning what happened after a pathologist revealed a CT scan showed Ron's body had no injuries. In a Facebook post, Dr. Sherman wrote, quote, The inquiry's findings, Ron was indeed murdered, not by Hamas, not by stray bullets, and not in an exchange of fire. This was deliberate murder, bombing with poison gas, she said. And news from Israel. A House panel in the Knesset overwhelmingly voted Tuesday to expel lawmaker Ofer Khasif for signing a petition supporting South Africa's genocide case against Israel. Khasif will now face a vote from the full Knesset. Khasif is an Israeli Jewish member of the left-wing Arab-Jewish Hadash party, who has repeatedly called for a ceasefire in Gaza. Visit democracynow.org to see our recent interviews with Ofer Khasif. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley has called for the U.S. to assassinate Iranian leaders after three U.S. troops were killed in a drone strike on a base in Jordan. Haley made the comment in an interview on Fox News. First, you do the sanctions and you take out a couple of their leaders. That's the way in you start. In their country? In their, if they're in their country or you do like Soleimani when they left the country. You figure out where they are. Our special operations can do that. And then you take them out. The presidential candidate is the former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations under President Trump. On Tuesday, President Biden said he's made a decision on how to respond to the drone strike, but did not disclose details. He accused Iran of supplying the weapons used in the attack, but said, quote, I don't think we need a wider war in the Middle East. A former IRS contractor has been sentenced to five years in prison for leaking tax records that reveal Donald Trump, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos and other wealthy figures pay little to no federal income tax. The whistleblower, Charles Littlejohn, leaked the documents to The New York Times and ProPublica. Prosecutors accused Littlejohn of taking a job at the Internal Revenue Service in 2017 with the intent of accessing President Trump's tax records. Littlejohn's attorney, Lisa Massing, said, quote, he committed this offense out of a deep moral belief that the American people had a right to know the information and sharing it was the only way to effect change, she said. An Argentinian court has overturned labor regulations proposed by newly elected far-right President Javier Millet that would have cut benefits and made it easier to fire workers who participate in union strikes and blockades. The three-judge panel argued such reforms are unconstitutional, stating they first must be approved by Argentina's Congress. The ruling comes just days after labor unions led tens of thousands of protesters in a general strike against Millet's austerity policies that have led to the civil 
severe devaluation of the Argentine peso and other massive spending cuts. Pakistan's former prime minister Imran Khan and his wife have been sentenced to 14 years in prison for selling gifts they had received while he was in office. The sentence came just a day after Imran Khan, who's already in prison, received a separate sentence of 10 years after being convicted of leaking state secrets by waving a classified Pakistani document during a public rally. It was later revealed the document exposed how the U.S. government encouraged Pakistani officials to remove Khan from office in 2022 after he took a neutral stance on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Imran Khan was ousted from office in April 2022 after lawmakers passed a no-confidence vote. On Tuesday, supporters of Khan denounced the Pakistani judiciary for targeting him just ahead of next week's elections. Today's cipher case verdict has broken records of injustice, a bogus case that was preceded in a manner that the arrest on the first day was unlawful and unconstitutional. The charge was framed in a way that was unlawful and unconstitutional. In this case, three orders of the high court were violated, one after another. It was preceded behind closed doors. The Republican-controlled House Homeland Security Committee has approved two articles of impeachment against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, moving the House closer to impeaching a cabinet official for the first time in nearly 150 years. Republicans have accused Mayorkas of failing to uphold immigration laws at the U.S.-Mexico border. If the full House votes to impeach Mayorkas, the articles would then be referred to the Democratic-controlled Senate. Democrat Democratic lawmakers have denounced the Republican impeachment effort. In other news from Capitol Hill, Democratic Congressmember Cori Bush has acknowledged she's under a Justice Department investigation for allegedly misusing campaign funds. In a statement, Bush said, quote, in recent months, right-wing organizations have lodged baseless complaints against me, peddling notions that I have misused campaign funds to pay for personal security services. That simply is not true, she said. Last year, the Office of Congressional Ethics investigated Bush's campaign spending and voted to dismiss the allegations. Bush's security needs increased after she faced numerous death threats. In Ohio, a 20-year-old white supremacist has been sentenced to 18 years in prison after he firebombed a church where two drag events were scheduled. Federal prosecutors said the man, Amen Penny, was a member of a White Lives Matter group. In October, Penny pleaded guilty to targeting the community church of Chesterland. Meanwhile, Utah has become the latest state to enact legislation banning transgender people from using bathrooms that match their gender identity. At least 10 other states have passed similar laws, including Florida, Idaho, Alabama, and Arkansas. The New York City Council Tuesday overwhelmingly approved two police and jail reform measures overriding vetoes by New York City Mayor Eric Adams. One bill would force New York police officers to report the race, gender and age of people they interact with or stop for questioning. The other bill would limit the amount of time people in custody are placed in solitary confinement in the city's troubled jail system. Council members supporting the override included the newly elected Harlem Councilmember Yusuf Salam. 
who is one of five black and Latinx teenagers wrongfully convicted of the 1989 beating and rape of a white woman in Central Park. Salam spent seven years in prison, including in solitary confinement, before being exonerated. On Tuesday, he delivered emotional remarks before voting aye. I vote aye because today the New York City Council is fighting for the implementation of two bills that would bring generational change in our criminal justice system. If these laws were in place in 1989, I vote aye. Yusuf Salam's vote came just days after he was pulled over by police while driving with his wife and daughters. He said the officer never responded to his request to know why he was being stopped. Later, the officer would say it was because his windows were tinted too dark and raised the issue of him having an out-of-state license plate. In Texas, a man sued Macy's department store and sunglass hut after facial recognition technology falsely identified him as a robber, leading to his imprisonment and sexual assault while in detention. 61-year-old Harvey Murphy Jr. was jailed for two weeks before being released after authorities confirmed he was not even in the state of Texas when the robberies occurred at a Houston sunglass hut and Macy's store. Murphy's lawyers say he was raped by three prisoners while in jail. In labor news, UPS has announced it'll cut 12,000 jobs this year. This comes just months after a labor deal was reached averting a potential strike. In other labor news, American Federation of Teachers has adopted a resolution supporting a ceasefire in Gaza. The union represents more than 1.7 million teachers and staff. The leaders of the National Education Association have also called for a ceasefire. Chilean artist Javier Salinas, formerly known as Papas Fritas, led a peaceful protest at a Starbucks coffee shop in Santiago last week, ordering over $1,000 worth of coffee with the names of 300 children killed by Israeli forces in Gaza. The names of the children were read out loud over the span of about two hours. Salinas named his action $1,198.80 $1 for the last 300 last breaths of hope. Ragna Zacarias. Ragna Zacarias. Mohamed Ali. Mohamed Ali. Ana Mohamed. Ana Mohamed. Starbucks has faced widespread boycotts across the globe over its refusal to support a ceasefire in Gaza. Chile is home to more than half a million people of Palestinian descent, thought to be the largest Palestinian diaspora community outside the Middle East. And Puerto Rican Broadway icon and Tony Award-winning artist Chita Rivera has died in New York at the age of 91. She began her career in Broadway in the 1950s, performing in dozens of roles, including in West Side Story. In 2009, she received the Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Barack Obama. New York Congressmember Menidia Velasquez, the first Puerto Rican woman to serve in the U.S. Congress, said on social media, quote, Chita Rivera was a trailblazer and Broadway legend who took pride in her Puerto Rican heritage and helped pave the way for other Latina artists. And those are some of the headlines. 
This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Iran has threatened to, quote, decisively respond to any U.S. attack on Iran following President Joe Biden's linking of Tehran to the drone attack on Sunday that killed three U.S. soldiers and wounded 40 at a military base in Jordan. President Biden announced Tuesday he had decided how to respond to the drone attack, though he did not say what that response would be. Outside the White House, Biden responded to a reporter's question on whether he holds Iran responsible for the deaths of the three U.S. soldiers. I do hold them responsible in the sense that they're supplying the weapons to the people who did it. I don't think we need a wider war in the Middle East. That's not what I'm looking for. Iran has denied any involvement in the attack, which targeted Tower 22, a secret U.S. base in northeastern Jordan near the Syrian border. Responsibility for the strike was claimed by the Islamic resistance in Iraq, a term used to describe a loose coalition of militias that oppose U.S. support for Israel's assault on Gaza. Meanwhile, a U.S. Navy destroyer in the Gulf of Aden shot down an anti-ship cruise missile on Tuesday launched by the Houthis in Yemen, the latest attack targeting U.S. forces in the region. For more, we're joined in Washington, D.C. by Trita Parsi, executive vice president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He's authored three books on U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, with a particular focus on Iran and Israel. Trita, welcome back to Democracy Now! If you can talk about what took place at this remote base, the killing of the three U.S. soldiers, injuring of about 40 others, and the drumbeat— uh, by Republicans, as well as Democrats, as well as the media in the United States, for President Biden to militarily respond. What would this mean? It obviously depends on how Biden responds. If Biden is uh, thinking about responding in terms of attacking Iran on Iranian soil, then as the warning came from Tehran, it's very, very likely that there will be a forceful response by the Iranians, which will bring the United States right into a shooting war with the Iranians, which is something that the administration says that they have been seeking to avoid. They have been repeating that message uh, several times in the last couple of days. I think it is important to note that all of this was predicted. From the very beginning, it was clear. As long as there was no material pressure on Israel to seize its bombardment in Gaza, this eventually would lead to a situation in which the United States would be uh, uh, faced with an attack that actually had left Americans killed. If we take a look at the statistics, there were about 60 attacks by these Iraqi militias against U.S. troops and bases during the first two and a half years of Biden's presidency. Since October 17th, however, when Israel went into Gaza, there's been more than 160 attacks just in these last 100 days. At some point, one of those attacks was going to kill Americans. And the president essentially accepted this risk, continued to allow Israel to bombard uh, uh, Gaza, in his own words, indiscriminately, knowing very well that the game of statistics was simply such that at some point the Iraqi militias would succeed and Americans would die. Now we are in that situation, instead of raising questions about this entire strategy as to why we are putting U.S. troops at risk in order for Israel to continue to 
uh, indiscriminately bomb and kill and slaughter people in Gaza. Instead, there's been this frenzy about uh, pushing us further into war. And this is how these endless wars begin. Tactical responses to attacks by the other side that in, in the moment may come across as legitimate because, of course, these attacks against U.S. troops are unacceptable without any recognition, however, that this is leading us into a war whose aims we have not defined, whose exit we cannot envision. Uh, but, Trito, when you say that these are uh, legitimate questions of attacks on U.S. troops, but what the heck are U.S. troops continuing to do in, uh, be in these countries? This Tower 22, for instance, the U.S. troops in Syria clearly uh, have no authorization from Congress uh, to be there. And importantly, in Iraq, uh, the, uh, the Iraqi government has been calling for the United States to withdraw uh, the few troops it still has in Iraq uh, from the country. But the U.S. is not disposed to even listen to the government of the country in which its troops are located. You're absolutely right. These are the moments where these questions should be asked, which is why are we there in the first place? As you noted, the troops in Syria do not have any legal authorization to be there by the U.S. Congress. Uh, the troops in Iraq, you know, for such a long time, we've said that they should be pulled out. Uh, nothing has happened yet. Uh, and the, the essential um, pretext for keeping them there, which is to fight ISIS, uh, has long expired. Because ISIS has been weakened, it's not been completely eliminated, but these countries who have far greater stake in the defeat of ISIS are now capable of handling that on their own without direct U.S. involvement and certainly direct U.S. presence in that fight. So we have to really ask ourselves, why do we continue to have a broader policy in the Middle East in which we are positioning more than 50,000 American troops in various places? in the region right now, in which they're essentially made to be sitting ducks and tripwires, and a single attack against them can lead to several deaths, which then again immediately will cause the rise of these calls for uh, a broader war in the region. This is to the detriment of our own interests. And this whole issue of uh, blaming uh, Iran as the directly responsible uh, for these attacks, every time we hear of one of these resistance groups is always with the adjective, the Iran-backed or the Iran-financed group. Uh, is it your sense that these groups have their own independent life, or is the Biden administration correct in, in uh, ascribing uh, uh, all of the real motivation coming from Iran? I think there's two exaggerated narratives here. One is the Iranian one in which they're essentially claiming that they have no control over these groups at all and that they're completely independent. That is not true. But also the other narrative, the Washington narrative, is not true. One that claims that the Iranians completely control these different groups and that they have no agency of their own. Clearly, they do have agency of their own. On numerous occasions, they have acted against the, the expressed wishes of the Iranians, particularly in the case of the Houthis. And even in the case of these Iraqi militias, uh, what has happened just in the last 48 hours is that clearly there's been a lot of backdoor diplomacy between the Iranians and the United States. Uh, and now the Iraqi militias have come out and said that they're seizing their attacks on the U.S. troops at this point. Uh, and it's clear that the Iranians have put some pressure on them to essentially de-escalate. I would suspect that the option that the president is considering right now is to do some form of attack inside of Iraq or Syria, probably give the other side ample heads up in order to 
evacuate those specific buildings. Uh, nevertheless, be able to say that he has responded, make sure that it's not too damaging, but sufficiently uh, strong to be able to calm some of the voices in Washington, but then leave it at that and ensure that there's some de-escalation afterwards. In the short run, that may work, and it might not be a bad plan. In the longer run, however, as long as there is no ceasefire in Gaza, it is really difficult to foresee that these attacks against U.S. troops uh, will end uh, indefinitely. As long as there's no ceasefire, I suspect that they will resume at some point, which means then that a continued warfare in Gaza by the Israelis is a direct threat to U.S. national interest because of the manner that it puts U.S. troops at risk in the region. Trita Parsi, your colleague at Quincy, Bill Hartung, uh, wrote on X, quote, on the question of Iran's role in the deaths of three uh, U.S. servicemen, President Biden said, I do hold them responsible in the sense that they're supplying the weapons to the people who did it. Does he feel the same way about the 26,000 deaths caused by U.S. weapons in Gaza? Bill Hartung asked. Your response, Trita. Well, I think Bill is absolutely correct. And I think uh, whether we agree or not with that argument, we have to recognize that is the sentiment throughout the Middle East right now and probably throughout the larger part of the world uh, in which the United States is held responsible for what Israel is doing, not just because providing all of these weapons, more than 10,000 tons of weapons have been shipped since October 7th. Uh, president has bypassed Congress twice to get them to Israel even faster, but also because of the very active effort by the Biden administration to block a ceasefire that has twice happened in the Security Council. That means that the large part of the world do see the United States as directly responsible for this. And that, again, is a very severe uh, to the very severe detriment of U.S. interests itself and the U.S.'s global standing. Trita Parsi, we want to thank you for being with us, Executive Vice President of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Coming up, a shocking raid on a Jenin hospital in the occupied West Bank by undercover Israeli forces dressed as doctors and Muslim women in headscarves kills three Palestinians. We'll speak with Dr. Mustafa Barghouti in Ramallah. Stay with us. Over the ashes of blood march the civilized soldiers Over the ruins of the French fortress of a failure Over the silent screams of the dead and the dying But please be reassured We seek no wider war The treaties were signed, the country was split into sections. But growing numbers of prisons were built for protection. Rapidly filling with people who called for election. But please be reassured, we seek no We seek no wider war. By Phil Oaks. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. 
Thousands of Palestinians took part in a funeral procession Tuesday in the occupied West Bank for three Palestinians killed by Israeli assassins in a shocking undercover raid on a hospital in Jenin. Surveillance footage from the Ibn Sina hospital shows around a dozen undercover Israeli forces storming the hospital, guns raised, wearing white doctor's coats or hospital scrubs, and dressed as Muslim women wearing headscarves. One of the undercover troops carried a rifle in one arm and a folded wheelchair in the other. The Israeli military claimed the three men it targeted were involved in planning an imminent attack and were using the hospital as a hideout without providing evidence. Hospital officials said there was no exchange of fire and that the three men were asleep, indicating the raid was a targeted killing. One of the three men killed had been receiving treatment at the hospital since being injured in an Israeli drone attack on October 25th and was partially paralyzed. This is Naji Nazal, medical director at the Ibn Sina Hospital. They killed the three youth, Basil and Mohammed Ghazawi and Mohammed Jalamni, in their room, while they were sleeping on their beds in the room. They were killed in cold blood, with direct gunshots to the head. Israeli soldiers and settlers have killed more than 380 Palestinians in the West Bank since October 7th, while more than 6,300 people have been arrested. For more, we go to Ramallah, where we're joined by the Palestinian physician, activist, politician Mustafa Barghouti. He serves as general secretary of the Palestinian National Initiative. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Dr. Barghouti. If you can start off by laying out exactly what you understand about this assault on the Janine Hospital, um, who was killed, uh, who were these undercover assassins who moved in dressed as Muslim women in headscarves, dressed as doctors and hospital staff? Well, uh, it is clear that those who assassinated the three Palestinians in the hospitals are uh, Israeli military group, uh, special security group uh, that is called the Arabists here. They usually act and dress as Palestinians in various places, and this is not the first crime they committed. But, uh, by the way, uh, this same group was uh, taking photographs with the Minister of Internal Security the fascist being veer uh, recently, and he published that uh, photo, and he praised them as heroes. What they've done is really uh, unacceptable and uh, represents a very serious violation of international humanitarian law uh, in, in, in four different uh, issues. First of all, they dressed as doctors, as nurses, as health professionals, and uh, they put one of them, one of the assassins, in, on a, a wheelchair and uh, dragged him into the hospital. Uh, this way, they are endangering, actually, all medical personnel, because from now on, nobody will be sure that he's dealing with a doctor or somebody who's disguising as a doctor. Second, they penetrated the hospital in an illegal manner, very early, in the very early hours of the morning, uh, and uh, they have no right to enter the hospital without even notification and without any any alarm. And uh, in principle, they are not allowed to enter the uh, hospital. Third, they attacked a patient who is handicapped, who is paralyzed in his bed while he was sleeping and shot him in the head 
and shot two others who were accompanying him in the same room, uh, three Palestinians, in an act that can only be uh, called as an act of assassination and and illegal execution of Palestinians. In every aspect of international humanitarian law, they have violated the law. They are continuing that. They are proud about it. They're praising themselves for doing it. And that is all happening because the world is allowing Israel to be impunitive to international law and impunitive to any law, as a matter of fact. Well, Dr. Barghouti, I also wanted to ask you what's going in terms of what's going on in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. More than 380 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli soldiers and civilians. And supposedly there is no uh, uh, Israeli uh, uh, military activity going on in uh, in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. Could you talk about uh, that other war that the rest of the world is not paying any attention to? Yes, actually, Israel is reoccupying the whole of the West Bank. I mean, since the 7th of October, not only they've killed 380 people, uh, but more than that, they are allowing settlers to wander around with guns. And these settlers are uh, behaving as terrorists, terrorizing Palestinian people. And uh, and uh, in addition to that, the Israeli army has arrested since the 7th of October 6,300 Palestinians in the West Bank including uh, no less than 200 children, including women. They kidnap people and they put them in jail without trial, without any legal process, without even charges. And uh, in addition to that, they have divided the country in 224 small islands uh, with 650 military checkpoints, each of which has become a point of harassment for people and a very dangerous spot because Palestinians could be killed for no reason. So, and then the Palestinian Authority has lost any authority. Practically, Israel took over all of the West Bank, although West Bank is not under the government of Hamas, as they claim in regarding Gaza. But uh, that's not the only thing. All these violations happen, and instead of punishing Israel or blaming Israel for its violations of international law, we see many Western governments, including the United States of America, punishing the Palestinians. Uh, and if you allow me to speak about that, I think the whole case of UNRWA uh, was used by Israel to distract attention uh, from the ICJ resolution, which indicted Israel for a plausible genocide. Instead of punishing Israel, they took up this case where Israel is claiming that some workers in UNRWA have been engaging in military actions without any proof, without investigation. And then you found 12 European countries and the United States of America and Canada and Japan cut off support to the only organization that is providing humanitarian aid to Gaza. That is the only bridge to humanitarian aid in Gaza. We are subjected to collective punishment. Palestinians who are the victims of the Israeli aggression, of the possibility of a genocide, are subjected to collective punishment by these governments, none of whom have have condemned this Israeli attack on the hospital. I wanted to turn to a clip of the U.S. State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller at a briefing on Tuesday. He was being questioned about the Israeli raid on the Janine Hospital by the Associated Press reporter Matt Lee. This operation that the Israelis... Launched in in Janine, the hospital mm-hmm. today. Um, 
what, what, what do you have any comment on that? Is this is this something that you think is a is problematic, or is it something that you look at with uh, envy, like this is some kind of great mission impossible mission that we wish that we could also do? So I'd say that we strongly urge caution whenever operations have the potential to impact civilians and civilian installations. That, of course, includes hospitals. Uh, we do recognize the very real security challenges Israel faces. Uh, and it's legitimate right to defend its people and its territory from terrorism. Israel, of course, has the right to carry out operations to bring terrorists to justice, but those operations need to be conducted in full compliance with international humanitarian law. Well, the, 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 those operations include going into hospitals and murdering people in their in, in their beds, regardless of whether they're so you know they are suspected or so even known. Terrorists. So Is that okay with you guys? So there was a lot in the premise of that question. Obviously, they we did did do know that they went into. Well, we, you don't think well, that they we went did, in and uh, killed we, complete people who were completely innocent. So let me say that this, if you did think that, then you would be condemning it, uh, right? We certainly would, but I would say that Israel has said that these were Hamas operatives. Uh, they have said that one of them was carrying a gun at the time of the operation. So I'm not able to speak to the facts of the operation. You'd have to to, to pass some kind of legal judgment, know all of the facts of the operation. But as a general matter, they do have the right to carry out operations to bring terrorists to justice, but they need to be conducted. Including in, full. in hospital. It, 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 so we want them to conduct their operations in compliance with their national humanitarian law. So that's U.S. State Department spokesperson Matt, Matthew Miller being questioned by the AP's Matt Lee. Uh, Dr. Mustafa Barghouti, if you can respond to what he's saying specifically here and uh, also overall then talk about the attacks in West Bank and Gaza on the health care system, going right to Nasser Hospital, which is the largest hospital after Al-Shifa. It's in southern Gaza, and uh, it's, it's been under siege for the last few days. But start with the spokesperson. There are many things to say here, but let me start by what he said about the proper legal process. Israel, Israelis should not have entered the hospital. Uh, they should not have disguised as doctors and nurses. This is all violation of international humanitarian law. But even if they if they wanted, they could have arrested these three guys and charged them and uh, give them a due legal process instead of executing them on the spot, just on the basis of their suspicion. What is the legal here? What is the legal system here? Israel is can now can say about anybody that he's a Hamas terrorist or a terrorist or anything else and then kill him in the street. And nobody will condemn that. United States of America has has no right not to condemn this action. And it is unacceptable that they continue to use double standard because they don't want to criticize Israel. Why? Because they know that they are participating with Israel with Israel in what could be perceived or condemned as an act of genocide by supplying Israel with weapons, by supplying Israel with soldiers even. They're supplying Israel with advisors in its terrible attacks on Gaza. And on the other hand, Gaza, Israel has been continuously persistent in attacking all hospitals, not only in Gaza, but also in the West Bank. They have subjected to Karim hospitals to attacks. They've subjected Jenin hospitals to attacks. They've sub subjected uh, hospitals in Nablus to attacks, 
And they continue to do that in Gaza, where they're bombarding the hospitals, bombarding the hospitals, killing patients, killing doctors, killing nurses. And add to that the fact that Israel has killed in Gaza up till now 304 of our colleagues, medical doctors, nurses, first aid providers. In addition, they injured 300 others while they were performing their medical duties. And they have arrested 90 of these health workers, including the director of Shifa Hospital, who is subjected now to torture in Israeli concentration camp in the Negev near Beersheba. This is the exact behavior of Israel. Do we hear any condemnation from the United States of America or from the United Kingdom? No. All the condemnation, all the punishment, all the collective punishment is directed only at one people, which are the Palestinian people. We don't understand how could these countries that claim that they are struggling, that they, they claim they support human rights, they claim they support democracy, they claim they support international law, and at the same time, not only they are allowing these crimes to happen against the Palestinians, but they are actually participating in them. That's what's happened in Jenin, like what's happening now in Gaza, where, by the way, 32,000 Palestinians have been killed so far, if we include the 7,000 under the rubble, and more than 65,000 people have been injured. That is more than 4% of the population of Gaza. Had this happened in the United States of America, you would be talking about 12 million people killed or injured in less than three months. Proportionally, the number of Palestinians killed in Gaza by after three months is more than all Americans killed in all America's wars since the 18th century. Is that acceptable? Is that allowable? That is the question that should be directed to Biden administration and to the American administration. How could they continue to allow Israel to be so impunitive to international law? And how could they allow this act of collective punishment against the Palestinian population when it comes to UNRWA and other health humanitarian services? By the way, the, the, the International Court of Justice decided there should be support to providing humanitarian supplies to Palestinians, and Israel should be responsible for that. What do we see in reality now in Gaza? I've been talking to our 30 medical teams working there. They say there is a decline in the amount of support that is coming in an unprecedented manner. What they get is absolutely not enough, less than 100 trucks daily, while what they need is 1,000 trucks daily, considering the terrible situation. We have people in the north and in the center of Gaza who are calling us saying they are starving, they have no food, they have no medical supplies. Our colleagues had to operate on people, injured people without, without anesthesia. And 600,000 people, according to the World Food Program now, 600,000 Palestinians now in Gaza are starving. What does the United States of America do about that? Do they do anything? or just protect Israel and provide protection for this Israeli aggression. Dr. Mustafa Barghouti, we want to ask if you can stay with us till after break. We're going to talk about that conference that took place in Israel. Almost a third of the Israeli cabinet was there. A number of the cabinet members addressed the conference, calling for the Israeli resettlement of Gaza. We're talking to Dr. Mustafa Barghouti, Palestinian physician, activist and politician, who serves as general secretary of the Palestinian National Initiative. We'll also be joined 
by a reporter for 972 magazine, Oren Ziv, who'll join us from Tel Aviv. He covered the conference of thousands of Israelis back in 20 seconds. بكلمك من مصر أم الدنيا بنت النيل فانت فاهم أنا بأمين مش هتفرق أنهي جيل انت ضد الإنسانية بتقل لا لقيت القافية دي في نيلي ده جوجل كلمة يري ده وبرغم الضمار الورد يعيش الوقت يعيد جوجل عب وهب بسيري وإدوارد سعيد في حاجة اسمها مقاومة وحاجة اسمها إرهاب في حاجة اسمها صهيوني غير يهودي ابن كتاب أرض الله أساسها الجيرة والسلام The Land of Canaan by Ghanaini. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Thousands of Israelis gathered in Jerusalem Sunday for a major conference calling for Palestinians to be removed from Gaza in order to rebuild Jewish settlements. The conference, organized by the settler group Nahala, was dubbed Settlement Brings Security and Victory, was attended by almost a third of the Israeli cabinet. Among the most high-profile speakers was Israel's public security minister, Itamar Ben-Gavir. Today, everyone already understands that fleeing brings war, and that if you don't want another 7th of October, you have to return home to control the territory. Speakers at the conference called for the Israeli settlement of Gaza and the continued expansion of settlements in the West Bank. Another prominent speaker on Sunday's conference was Israel's finance minister, Bezalel Smotrich. We are settling our land from width to length, controlling it and fighting terror always and bringing, with God's help, security to all of Israel. You know what the answer is. Without settlement, there is no security. For more, we go to Tel Aviv, where we're joined by Oren Ziv, a reporter and photographer for Plus 972 magazine, who covered the Settler Conference in Jerusalem on Sunday. His piece is headlined, Turning Zaytun into Shabbat Zion. Israeli summit envisions Gaza resettlement. Uh, staying with us is Dr. Mustafa Barghouti, uh, speaking to us from Ramallah. Oren, why don't you start off by just describing this conference, the significance of it, and what shocked you most as you covered it. Thank you for having me, first of all. Uh, I have to say this is the last event in a series of events and protests of the settler movement uh, calling to what they say is going back to Gaza, returning to the settlements that were evicted by Israel in the 2005 disengagement. Uh, this event was significant because thousands of people uh, took part in it in West Jerusalem. Uh, they gather in a big hall. I could say half of the participants were youth or college students, and you had mostly religious uh, right-wing settlers. Uh, there, at the entrance, you had a big map, a huge map, showing uh, the different settlements they planned to establish in the Gaza Strip, some of them literally on top of Palestinian villages and towns that uh, exist and, of course, unfortunately, were 
uh, destroyed by the Israeli aggression in the recent months. Inside the hall, uh, we had speeches of, uh, as you said, ministers, uh, parliament members, four out of five uh, of the representative of four out of five of uh, the parties that are in the coalition of Netanyahu's government uh, were there, 11 ministers and 15 parliament members. So a uh, big support from uh, the government and also settlers, uh, leaders and activists. Uh, for me, uh, personally, the most shocking thing was not only the plan uh, to establish the settlements, but the fact the people there were dancing and singing, being happy and joyful. And this is important to understand that uh, in the Israeli uh, public uh, atmosphere, this is something you barely see since the attack of 7 of October. You don't, you don't see public events where people are joyful, not because, you know, most of the Israeli public ignore the horrific uh, reality in Gaza, but because of the war, because of the attack of 7 October, because of sold Israeli soldiers are being uh, uh, killed every day in the war, you don't see many of those events. And it shocked even mainstream Israelis to see ministers and people who take those decisions regarding the dancing um, was very shocking for many people. And I think this is because while the vast uh, or big parts of the Israeli public is still in shock, uh, the settler movement see this war as an opportunity to expand their plans to settle uh, in Gaza. And Oren, I wanted to ask you, uh, apparently the the British Foreign Minister David Cameron, uh, I think uh, some reports are saying reacting to this uh, conference over the weekend, uh, reaffirmed Britain's position that there must be a two-state solution uh, to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I'm wondering your thoughts about how some of these Western countries continue to support uh, the war in Gaza and while maintaining that the, a two-state solution that they know the Israeli government has made clear it has no intention of following through on. Yes, I think this conference made it very clear because ahead of the the hearing in The Hague, the ICJ hearing, uh, official Israel, Netanyahu and other uh, members of the more the center kind of uh, part of the government tried to portray a picture that Israel will not stay in Gaza, will not set in Gaza, this uh, temporary war. And this event and the participant of uh, senior members of the government makes it very clear that A, they don't want any two-state solution, but this we've seen over the years, but more importantly, that they don't care about the international law, they don't care about the ICJ procedure. Uh, it doesn't threaten them to continue to express uh, those opinions. You one could think that after ministers uh, and the prime minister itself were quoted in the South African appeal to the court, uh, this were the evidence actually, what the Israeli politician, the genocidal uh, discourse they were promoting in the beginning of the war, one could think they would be a bit more careful, but the opposite. This was not, it's important to mention, this was not only a conference talking about settling in Gaza, it was very clear and most of the speakers talked about the, what they call is the, call as the encouraging immigration or uh, forcing people from Gaza. So it's very clear that the settlement movement is on the account of the residents uh, of Gaza. Daniela Weiss, one of the settlers' leader who was 
leading the conference uh, when we asked her what would happen to the Palestinians if your plans uh, come true. She said they would leave, they would have to leave, we don't give them food, we don't give them water. She was talking about the siege and she said they would leave, they would have to spend around the world. Also, uh, Minister Benville, which, who was a bit more careful in his language, said we have to encourage immigration from Gaza. So this was a consensus in the conference. Erin, we just played a clip of Bezalel Smotrich, um, who's a cabinet member. Um, I'm looking at a Times of Israel article um, that says, uh, from a few years ago, uh, that the former Shin Bet deputy chief, uh, Yitzhak Ilan, um, he was the former deputy head of Shin Bet Security Service, reportedly told a political gathering that Smotrich uh, was a Jewish terrorist who planned to blow up cars on a major highway during the 2005 Gaza disengagement, when, um, uh, when the Israeli settlers were forced out by Israel of Gaza. Can you talk about the significance of this today, um, what, almost 20 years later? who Smotrich is. He was held for three weeks, questioned by Shimbet, ultimately wasn't charged. Apparently, they didn't want to endanger their sources, who talked about him being found with massive amounts of gasoline. Yes, uh, this is true. Uh, Smotrich was a security prisoner. He was suspected in that, but not convicted. But this shows us, uh, together with Benvir, that I personally documented and saw him uh, attacking Palestinian, attacking uh, Israeli left-wing activists along the years before he became a parliament member and a minister. So these are is people that are well known from uh, the right-wing extreme activities. Uh, and unfortunately today, they, they decide the policies, they lead Israel. And I think this is why also Netanyahu and kind of the more center-right part of the government cannot say this is not official Israel. This is not an official line. Because we've seen Netanyahu ahead uh, of the ICJ and we've seen other speakers of Israel saying, well, there are ministers, there are parliament members, but they, they're not in the war cabinet. They don't take the decision. This is, of course, just rhetoric to protect Israel from being accountable. I think when we see such a big, uh, such a big yeah. number of ministers, senior ministers and parliament members taking part in this conference that is callingly open to transfer, to displace Palestinians from Gaza. And maybe more important, I think this discourse, it's important to say, also encourages soldiers on the ground, right-wing so soldiers, settler soldiers, or just ordinary so uh, soldiers, that hear this rhetoric on Israeli mainstream media, on social media, it encourages them to carry out war crimes. The the war itself is horrific enough, but I'm afraid that this rhetoric by members of the government encourages or uh, gives the feeling to the soldiers on the ground they can do anything. Because if Israel, according to this uh, conference, will eventually control the Gaza Strip, it means soldiers on the ground, and we've seen that on TikTok, on Instagram, social media, can do whatever they want because it belongs to Israel. So they can explode houses, they can vandalize, they can steal property, they can do whatever they want because this eventually will be Israeli property.
I'd like to bring Dr. Mustafa Barghouti back into the conversation. Doctor, your reaction to this conference and to this uh, uh, these post-invasion uh, plans of the uh, of the Israeli of, of a good portion of the Israeli government. The Bingvir and Smotrich are known to be fascists, of course, and uh, sometimes they are described as psychopaths, but uh, they're not really only psychopaths. They are the ones who are deciding the Israeli government policy. And none of their statements, fascist statements, was ever negated by Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel. And these guys are representing what uh, can be called Jewish religious uh, extreme fundamentalism, combined with Jewish supremacy thinking. And they believe that the whole of the land of Palestine and Jordan as well, and parts of Saudi Arabia and Syria are supposed to be Jewish land. And uh, these guys are practically repeating, confirming actually what had happened in 1948, when Israel, as a settler colonial project, committed uh, 50 massacres against Palestinians and evicted and uh, fifth, evicted people from 520 communities and then erased them to the ground. They want to repeat what Israel did in 1948, another Nakba uh, against Palestinian people. And they are speaking openly about uh, three war crimes simultaneously. The war crime of ethnic cleansing, the war crime of collective punishment, and the war crime of genocide. They want to evict everybody from Gaza. And that's, by the way, what Netanyahu himself called for in the very first days of this war. That's what Gallant called for when he said that Palestinians are human animals and should be treated as such. And what you've seen in this conference, this is not just a bunch of, extre of extremists. It's the government, the Israeli government. Twelve ministers of the Israeli government attended that meeting and supported it. Fifteen members of the Israeli parliament, the Knesset, attended it. So you are talking here practically about the official Israeli policy, which is directed at ethnic cleansing of Palestinians and then settlements, not only in Gaza. As a matter of fact, also in the West Bank, we are now subjected to settler terror, settler terror, which has evicted already 30 Palestinian communities from their land, from their homes in the West Bank. 60% of the West Bank is now practically forbidden for Palestinians and is allocated to the Israeli settlers. And we don't have to go far. All we need, all you need to do is to show the map that Netanyahu has shown in the United States, in the United Nations, two weeks before the war in Gaza. He showed the map of Israel, including the annexation of all of the West Bank, all of Gaza Strip, and all of the Golan Heights. What everybody must understand that this is the Israeli official government policy. And that's why it has to be punished. That's how, that's why it has to be sanctioned, and that's why it has to be exposed. And Israel cannot be allowed to continue to be absolutely unaccountable to international law and absolutely imperative to international law. I want to thank you both for being with us. Mustafa Barghouti, Palestinian physician, activist and politician. Um, uh, we also want to thank Oren Ziv in Tel Aviv, uh, reporter and photojournalist with Plus 972 magazine. That does it for our show. <clears throat> we have a job opening at Democracy Now!, major gifts officer. Learn more at democracynow.org. Democracy Now!, is produced with Mike Burke, Renee Feltz, I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.